let's be honest, none of us are quite ready for the next disaster that might be around the corner. At any point, we will be soon probably in a situation where we are overwhelmed. Our guest, Richard Bryant, became the CEO of a failing family business at 28 years of age. He inherited a business that was losing $3.5 million a year, and he turned it around. Richard is now a coach to CEOs and leaders, helping them build out succession plans, prepare for disasters, and make sure that they know what's going to be around the corner, and at a minimum, they have the team that will help them weather the storm. Richard Bryant, welcome to How I Turned the Corner. Thank you, Kendra. Very nice to be here. So let's talk about those early days. So we know what the key was to turning around the business. It was getting the right people in the t- on the team, right? What what were some of the earlier things that you learned along the way that led you to that place? Uh, well, I, I think when I joined the business, it was pretty obvious that we needed change because we were about six months from running out of cash. So we, you know, we had huge losses, huge bank overdraft, and a lot of people who were, I would say, entitled because they'd been in a position for a long time rather than focused on sort of customer satisfaction, customer service. Um, So it was clear there needed to be some change. Um, But I think at 28, I realized I didn't have the experience and quite honestly, the credibility with our bank and our manufacturer partners to um to sort of lead that change so i was smart enough to go and find someone who could help me and uh although i was employing this guy who was a a a man named frank he actually became my mentor he was in his late 50s and um had led several turnarounds before and with his help we managed to get things back on track but yes it was it was all about the people and the finances, quite honestly. Those were the two main things. Well, and as I understand it, this was a family business. had been in your family for multiple generations, your great-grandfather, your grandfather, your father, and now here you are, the fourth generation. I can't even imagine how stressful that must have been, kind of cleaning house with family. Yeah, it was. We had 16 shareholders who were all related, which was fun. But uh, I was the only one who was actually active in the business. The others were all passive shareholders. So in a way, that made it a little easier. But um, yeah, it, it was difficult because when you've got people that have worked for you for a long time, it's it's tough when when you're you're having to change things and you're having to change things to survive. So it was a culture change, really, which was uncomfortable for some people, but it, it needed to be done. Mm-hmm. So what were some of the things that you, you what were some of the, the guardrails that you had in place to help you make those decisions? Well, I think I was lucky that I had Frank's experience, right? This wasn't his first time around. And so he described me as having paralysis by analysis when he met me. Like I knew how much money we were losing, but I didn't know quite what to do about it. Um, so I was like a deer in the headlights, really. And um, he helped me just to prioritize and, you know, not tick things off one at a time and actually make decisions, implement those decisions and get the business moving forwards. And and a lot of it was around getting the right people in the right places. It sounds a bit cliched, but it really was 
that simple in terms of um, some lateral moves, some people leaving the company, but bringing in some fresh talent as well and, and fresh blood because a lot of the people that were there at a senior level, and I'm talking like CFO and uh, CEO um, who I replaced, were they had just got used to um, failure, quite honestly. They were just used to seeing poor results and had almost just resigned themselves to it. So that was the biggest thing was saying, look, we're not going to accept this, um, but we have to start getting better customer satisfaction. And if we're going to do that, quite honestly, we need to start by getting better employee satisfaction because morale was pretty low. Yeah, definitely. So along those along those lines, then you were um, you were in a spot where you were starting to see this and making these changes. Did you make them all very fast? Was it was it somewhat slow? Um, what was the process? So I often get asked if you hadn't bought Franken, do you think you would have survived? And I my answer to that is probably no, not because I didn't understand the business, but because I wasn't really making decisions quickly enough. Um, and when Frank came in, we picked up the pace. So we had a lot of change pretty quickly. And once we got our team in place, our senior team, then we were able to sort of cascade down some some positive messages and um, focus on the future rather than worrying about what happened in the last couple of years. And I think that was absolutely key and we did that by getting, well, I mean, we had 360 employees at six locations at this time. And so we we got them together in small groups of 20. We showed them the numbers, which is something that had never happened before in a privately owned family business. That was a closely guarded secret. So we showed them the numbers so they understood the context of the decisions we were making because the numbers were terrible. Uh, we explained the numbers. We um, We answered lots of questions. And we were just very transparent about the predicament we were in because, uh, yes, we did lose a few people by doing that. But actually, if they weren't up for the fight, we didn't want them to stay. And um, so I think that was was really um, a smart move that we did that because then we had everyone at least on the same page. Mm hmm. It's interesting you just went through all that because we we um on my team we just went through a change management course to be a little bit better with bringing more deliberate change management um into the work we do and everything you just said is exactly what's recommended and so I want to highlight it for our listeners because um not everyone has got the just deep insight like you have but you connected with their heart and their mind so you you said to them like we want to make this work we want to continue to employ people pay your paycheck basically and here are the numbers that was the mind piece and when you did that what you do actually physically is you're actually helping get them bought in and then you celebrated small wins you did it in a small group way you were transparent all those are the tenements of good change management so nice job <laughs> oh well thank you well i had frank to help me but yeah. i was not actually taking the questions um and you know they, some of them were, were tough questions but yeah, i think all you can do is be uh, be transparent. And my experience of not just in my own family business turnaround, because I was there for 15 years, 10 years as CEO, um, but also working with clients now um, as a speaker, but also as a coach, is that 
the more open book you can be, the better in privately held and particularly family businesses, which are not famous for being open about things, then, um, you know, it, it creates, if you want to create trust, I think you have to be open. And and as I tell my clients, if you're not open and you keep, for example, the financials a closely guarded secret, people will always assume that you're either doing better, far better than you think, or far worse. And so it's better to just be honest with them, to be honest, you know, mm-hmm. and just you get far more um, buy-in if you do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And that's one of the, McKinsey just dropped their latest study on what caused people to leave their job in the last quarter. I keep my eyes on this report every quarter. And the latest one is um, one of the new things that's on the list is uh, an open and honest leader or the lack of an open and honest leader was one of the reasons that they left. And when you look at the trends of what we see all the way from government down to business, like people are now so aware of like what's fair and what's right. And they don't want to be around people who are not doing the fair and right thing. And that's that a lot of leaders is going to start to really hit them if they're not open and transparent. And again, probably not survive this people revolution, you know, not be able to continue to have people on their team if they're not more open and transparent. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I know it can be scary, but um, I think once you start sharing uh, numbers and information on a more open basis with your team, then, um, you know, it just becomes the norm. And uh, and I think it's very healthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's only scary if there's something in there that you're afraid of being called out on. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, now let's fast forward to now. So you now work with CEOs and help with all, you know, succession planning. And I think family businesses are notorious for not having any kind of successor. It's like, you know, maybe just in, handing a business down to someone who didn't maybe even want it. Right. <laughs> and so, so can you talk a little bit about what, what you're seeing in that, in that world right now of succession planning with leaders? Yes. Yeah, so um, I actually, I work with CEOs and their leadership teams. So although the CEO is typically my client, it's the leadership team that I'm working with because I want to make sure that they have a cohesive team. And that sort of starting point is a cohesive team of A players. Cause I know that, if you can get that at the top of the business, then you can really, uh, really get things moving and grow at a faster rate. And uh, that's a sort of win for everyone. Um, but I, I think I'm seeing, uh, particularly with some of my um, family business clients, that they're, you know, they are actually well aware because of the baby boomers retiring that they they really do need to plan further ahead it's no good to just have a an annual annual budget and think your planning is done you know you need to think 3 to 5 years ahead so i always recommend having a 3 year rolling forecast uh, financially but also um to think about where you want the business to be in 5 years time now whether that's you want to be retired in five years' time and you're growing a business you can sell or whether that's a sale to the leadership team or if you're passing it on to the next generation of family leadership. In any of those scenarios, if you give yourself a longer runway in terms of planning, you've got more options and better options because a, a gradual transition is always the best way forwards. It's a less of a shock to the business and quite honestly, it's less of a shock to the, uh, the successor. Well, and it's, you'll get more money. 
I mean, when yeah, you I if mean, when you go to value a business, there's going to be more money, and the, uh, the the or the business is going to be valued higher because there is that plan, and potentially you've even figured out the cash situation by then, so it's really highly valued. So, yeah. Well, and I think the worst case scenario is when you've got a leader where it all revolves around them, because not only does that inhibit growth, because you can only grow at the pace of you know their personal capacity, but you are really not in the best position if you come to sell that business because the you, you know the, the acquiring business will look at it and think well everything revolves around this person without them we don't have a business and i think that's particularly the case with sort of smaller businesses is you've got a, a ceo or a founding ceo who uh, is very dominant in terms of decision making and that's that's just not healthy if you want to have uh, either pass it on to next generation or sell for the best price Mm-hmm. And so you also do some work around kind of dealing with disasters and messes. Can you talk <laughs> yeah. a little bit about that? <laughs> yeah, I do. Um, I do help um, uh, leadership teams and, and business owners with um, some turnaround strategies as well. And and obviously, having lived through it, that's that's helpful. But I think we all obviously lived through the pandemic where we we all had to adjust and. Um, I mean, some businesses actually did very well during the pandemic, so it wasn't all a, a disaster. But um, I think it's just understanding um, if your sales have dropped or you're suddenly into a, a loss-making situation, it's understanding what to do, first of all, to survive, which is normally around having enough cash, and and secondly, to make sure that you keep the people that are key to your survival and your growth after the uh, after the sort of uh, challenge has uh, the storm has passed, um, because you know if you have to downsize at all, you want to make sure that you are keeping those people that would be very difficult to replace your sort of A players. Mm-hmm. So how do you how do you help CEOs now? Get a little bit more clarity around this. You were you were saying before we started the recording that you know you're working with a CEO right now who's who's you know really driving results and in and it's affecting the people. People are turning over. How do you how do you recommend people our CEO balances this? Uh, well, so we actually have a three stage process, which is. Um, we do some planning, strategic planning to start with, which is about forget what we're doing now. Let's think about the future and create a vision for our ideal future. Where do you want to be in three years? Where do you want to be in five years? And then we work backwards from that. And um, we do some financial forecasting. But I think most important, actually, and the bit that uh, I find that they're less used to or yes, less comfortable with is starting out with look what's your core purpose why are you in business to start with and what are your core values as a business because as you if you can be crystal clear on that then you can actually look at your team either the existing team but more importantly the people you you want to join going forward and make sure that they're actually aligned with that because if they're not aligned to your core purpose and your core values the chances are you're going to turn them over. And um, as we were talking about before we start the recording, there's a serious cost to that. If you've got high turnover, um, I think it's pretty difficult to measure accurately, but it's it's a lot, right? There's lots of surveys that, that talk about the cost of turnover in any business is 
it's um when i joined the family business in our sales department we had 30 percent annual turnover so uh that was not good <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah no i did do the numbers on this not too long ago because you know there's all the stats but i i, I think a lot of times people are a little dubious of these statistics right. and so i just looked at my own PL and um and did the math around a bad hire i had many years ago but <clears throat> just assuming a hundred thousand dollar a year employee that I was onboarding, which onboarding, nobody's effective for at least a few months until, you know, before they really, pardon? Three to six months. Yeah. So just, so let's just say conservatively, three months, that's $25,000 at $100,000 a year. And then I ended up letting her go three months and seven days into employment. And so I also had her taxes and her benefits I was paying for. I had to buy her a chair. (laughs) <laughs> should have been a sign, right? Um, I had I had all the churn on the team. I mean, if one hour a month per employee was spent churning, which we know was more, that's like another twenty thousand dollars. Like the math is is horrible. So one bad employee probably cost me at a minimum sixty four thousand dollars. That was my math, and that to me, I mean, I can totally resonate with that math. And so, you know, in Sherm, some of the studies that are out there are saying it's bet- about, you know, that would be the middle point, the 64000 So, yeah, nobody talks about how expensive this turnover is. And so we get into talking about like the, you know, we talk about the cost of a customer acquisition. Well, there's a cost of an employee acquisition. Like there's an ROI on employees. Every business is different. A coffee shop might have an ROI of nine months, right? Where you have a barista for nine months. That might be great. You get enough out of them in that time. A business like mine, it's three or four years, probably. If I'm losing anyone in less than that amount of time, that's so expensive. Well, and you think in my old business that, you know, people were typically buying a new car every three years. And so if every time they walked into the showroom, they were all all different faces, didn't recognize anyone. It didn't exactly make them feel comfortable. And so that, that turnover was particularly harmful in terms of customer experience, customer loyalty, customer satisfaction. And I, and I think whatever business you're in, if you've got a lot of turnover, um, then it's affecting your client retention as well, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. Really good point. So now let's let's switch gears just a little bit and and chat about kind of what you're seeing. Um, so, you know, you and I being consultants in the world, I think we get more of a bird's eye view on on things that are coming because we're working in of, with and in a lot of businesses, different industries, different parts of the country. And I don't know if you experience this or not, but I start to see patterns and trends to the point where I can start predicting what's going to happen, you know, a year or two out on some things. Um, I predict- predicted this people revolution back in 2015. So, you know, that, just because of what I was seeing, right? And so what what are you noticing right now? Uh, well, obviously, anyone who's connected to real estate, whether that's commercial or residential, has uh, seen a, a- a tough time recently you know the markets changed with interest rates going up so that that's been challenging uh, i also think businesses that were borrowing a lot of money have seen a big difference because you know they were borrowing at very very historically low interest rates and now they've suddenly got a much bigger burden to cover there so that that's definitely impacted confidence in terms of investment not just in building and real estate but in investing in the business the infrastructure of the business 
But I'm pretty optimistic that uh, small to medium sized businesses in the United States in particular are pretty robust. And um, I'm pretty confident that they'll they'll bounce back strongly. And a lot of the people I know from groups like Vistage and Entrepreneurs Organization, you know, yes, they've found the interest rates challenging if they're borrowing money, but um, they're they're finding ways around it and they're being creative and and they're focusing more on their people, right? They're focusing on uh, understanding that the old cliche about your business is your people is, is true. And and holding on to the really good people is is more key now than ever, I think. I think that's a perfect spot to end. So yes, thank you so much, Richard. People, it always comes down to the people, which of course, anyone who's listening to this podcast knows that I'm going to say that. <laughs> but it's true. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today on How I Turned the Corner. Thank you.